Hi, everybody. Welcome to the WEU Most Awesome Founder podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. I'm your host, Dries Vaans, and as a very good tradition, I'm joined today by my co-host, Garrett McGowan. Garrett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dries. I'm excited for this one, mate. This is going to be a good one. Yes, and maybe let's immediately tell our audience what our plan is for today. So we are actually approaching the end of 2023, and we were thinking that it would actually be nice to have a special episode where we will actually focus on a very specific document that has been written exactly 25 years ago. More specifically, in 1998, two WAU students called Max Finger and Oliver Zander wrote their thesis on the topic of America's most successful startups. Quite an ambitious title. These students flew to the US and interviewed more than 90 prominent founders, investors, and venture capitalists to get a better understanding of how to build successful startups. And based on the interviews, they actually wrote an extensive master thesis formulating a huge amount of propositions on how to create a successful startup. Now, several months after finishing their thesis, both Finger and Sumner, together with actually some other people like Jörg Reinbold, who has been on the podcast before, founded Alando, which became like the German eBay and actually was bought by eBay one year later. Afterwards, both Finger and Sumner became again part of a successful startup called Yamba, which nowadays is known as a startup that has maybe produced the most annoying ringtone in history. <laughs> now, whereas Max Finger has chosen kind of a less prominent uh, visible life in the startup ecosystem afterwards, Oliver Sumner moved forward relentlessly and, as you might know, created Rocket Internet together with his two brothers which became an essential incubator and later on investor for startups in the Berlin ecosystem and companies such as Zalando and HelloFresh have emerged out of that ecosystem. Now in this episode, we do not want to dive into the personal histories of these people. Actually, if you want to know more about the life of Oliver Zamner and how it has influenced the German ecosystem and how it is interrelated with WAU, there is already a very good podcast called the OMR Podcast Rabbit Hole from the Zamner story. Um, so we can highly encourage you to listen to that podcast. What we want to do today in this episode is actually to go back to this master thesis that was written at WAU and actually take a look at the propositions that have been developed in the thesis. And so what Garrett and I have been doing is to simply select some propositions that we want to discuss today. And on the one hand, we will discuss some propositions that we would label as visionary, that I think were ahead of their time. And on the other hand, we also have picked some propositions that we would label as ironic, meaning that label them as quite surprising if you consider the kind of future career of Oliver Zamner. Garrett, we both went to this document. Now, before we go into the, the details and the propositions, maybe as a starting point, can you kind of give an, an, an overall impression about what you felt reading this master thesis? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I mean, to begin, I found this to be an absolutely fascinating read. 
Um, to be fair, in hindsight and kind of knowing how the core tenets of this study and their research played out in history makes it uniquely compelling, I think. You know, of course, mm -hmm. if you know the Samora rocket internet story, you know, you can really see examples of how their experience in the U.S. and this thesis informed that later journey. You mm. know, I, we can talk about a ton of things about this paper, but I, I wanted, I, I took a few notes on like <laughs> yeah. really, you know, really what part of, what parts of the paper I found super, super interesting at a high level. You know, first mm. of all, like intelligence and, and hustle, right? You know, <laughs> clearly what these two young men were are smart they were observant and they had some incredible hustle to fly across the world take on this project and connect with so many high level people in in silicon valley like impressive right off the bat two when you actually dug in to see who their participants were and whatnot mm -hmm. there was a lot of b2b in there right okay. actually the majority it seemed like of the the people that they interviewed were b2b tech companies, right? So, hmm. you know, they, they gleaned all these insights from what was largely B2B founders and ventures, yet history has shown us that they took most of these learnings into a B2C world. And as a result, hmm. I think some of the learnings, they maybe abandoned along the way for whatever reason. <laughs> the, the third yeah. piece I want to just mention that I found probably the most fascinating piece of all was that the lion's share of this paper, it seemed like, was focused on culture. And mm. it really surprised me to see how somewhere in Finger were so focused and so passionate about what startup culture looked like. And, you know, uh, although there's a ton to unpack there, you know, I just love the fact that they, you know, brought back to late 1990s Germany, these ideas and norms of Silicon Valley that really went against traditional business convention and culture in Germany. So, mm. you know, kudos to, to Ollie and Max for really doing something uh, creative there. One last thing I just want to say is like, take it with, take all of this with a grain of salt, right? <laughs> I don't think there's anything in there that a 2024 bachelor student studying entrepreneurship is going to find particularly earth shattering or game changing. Mm. But if you're a student of startup history, and particularly in Germany, the time at which they came up with these insights, and I think was were pretty impressive. And it's it's really in a way more of a an ethnography or biography, right? This fascinating dive into the mindsets of these young men, who in the end really arguably sparked the startup ecosystem of Germany as we know it today. So, no, you know, no. lots of insights, put it in, in context of place and time. And I think you'll find it very impressive. What about you, Dries? What did you think? Yeah. So actually this context was also for me important because of course I went back to my, to, to myself in 1998 and was thinking, where was I in 1998? <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that at that point I was doing my bachelor myself. I was at uh, Catholic University in Leuven in Belgium, doing a bachelor in applied economics. And so we also, of course, had an entrepreneurship course at that point in time. But that entrepreneurship course was like creating what we nowadays call business models. It was like, okay, you envision a startup and then you build a big Excel with where you make a financial planning for the next five years, how much turnover you will have and 
all that kind of stuff, uh, which we now, I think, agree upon that that's the biggest bullshit you can do. <laughs> so, uh, and these guys actually, if you, if you read the book, you see really kind of the, the seeds of what we nowadays call the lean startup approach. Mm -hmm. But the lean startup approach, uh, the book from Eric Ries was written in like 2011, 2012. So these guys already kind of wrote a similar, I would say, manifesto, but actually 14 years before Eric Ries wrote his manifesto. So I fully agree with you. If you go back in time and think about that this was written in 1998, I think you can really call it a kind of visionary document, especially for entrepreneurship in Europe. Um, so in that way, I was very impressed. At the same time, I also looked at it, of course, as a professor who has to create master theses. So I was imagining, okay, if these two guys would be supervised by me and they, they came back with this document, what, what the kind of feedback would I give? And, and again, I think interviewing 90 people flying to the US, doing this in-depth analysis, it's clear that they really did a high intellectual effort. The thing that kind of struck me a bit was that in the whole document, there are zero academic references. <laughs> so they have just fully ignored the existing academic literature on entrepreneurship. And I agree in 1998 that literature was much less developed than nowadays, but it's not that it was non-existent. And typically you would expect from bachelor students that they also do a literature study, show what the academic literature has been written about this topic. And the fact that they have bluntly ignored that, I think also tells something about the attitude of these two guys and, and how they looked at entrepreneurship and, and academia. So I think that was quite uh, intriguing to see, I would say. That's a really good insight that I, I didn't actually pick up on that shows where <laughs> yeah. my academic head, head space is. Yes. You know, I got the feeling that these were two young guys that knew that they wanted to be entrepreneurs. And, yeah. you know, they even talk about in the paper about like tailoring your education to being the entrepreneur that you want to be. And the, maybe that's the key objective that they were going for was just getting through education, getting, squeezing whatever they could out of that, that lemon and, you know, using that for rocket fuel to go into, into their entrepreneurial endeavors. And to be fair, mm -hmm. it worked. So yeah. <laughs> can't knock yeah. them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it also shows a level of audacity, not that you're in your early twenties and that you write a manuscript, a book where you pretend to be able to propose how a successful startup can be built. But at that time, they also didn't have any experience. And, and if you read the document, the propositions are formulated in a very explicit manner. So I also found that quite intriguing that a 20 year old was kind of having the audacity to write this document in that way, which I think is nice, but it, it's also interesting. It, it just as a, as a quick aside, I did notice that uh, Max Finger sells them on Amazon as like a book really? for, for like 120 euros. So they're still <laughs> still being entrepreneurial and monetizing these things. <laughs> now I can tell our audience, if you're smart on internet, you can get it for free. <laughs> Cool. Let's talk proposition. Okay. Yes. Um, maybe I can start. And, and so as mentioned before, we can start with the, the visionary proposition. So the propositions that we really would label as visionary, again, going back to 1998, maybe today they don't no longer sounds 
that visionary, but I think for that time they were extremely visionary. Dries, maybe we, maybe I can just interject. I think it yeah. might provide a little context for people to understand what these propositions are, right? Yes, so go ahead. One of the things this this paper is broken up into chapters, into sections, into subsections, into sub subsections <laughs> with more periods and numbers than you can would ever want to read. But I think they did that strategically because at the end of each kind of core section or paragraph, which in some cases was maybe four or five sentences and some was a few pages, they always came up with a, a proposition. And I really love it, which kind of summarized the learning of that particular component. And the reason I want to bring that up is so you understand why we're talking about propositions here. But yes. I think the other thing that is really compelling and is that they were so freaking action oriented, right? <laughs> this wasn't about, you know, this wasn't, you know, they, they weren't just trying to publish something. They weren't trying to show how smart they were. They were literally trying to create a list of lessons that they were going to take with them in their entrepreneurial careers. So in, in some ways, it's almost like a checklist. We're going to go yeah. start a business. If we're going to be successful, we better check all of these things off because these Americans have shown us that this is the way. So I love the practicality of that. But as a result, I don't know, there were 100 something propositions. Yeah, I didn't count it, right? but it was a yeah. lot. Yeah. yeah. So right. um, that's why we're discussing it in this context and why we've kind of chosen some propositions that we thought were visionary and others that we thought were a bit ironic. So with that in mind, Dries, what was visionary to you? So the first one that I picked were actually two propositions and they're highly uh, interrelated. So the first one is spend a tremendous amount of time and effort on market research. Understanding clear customer needs is the key to success. And the second related, there is nothing like talking to customers. It's the single most important part of your homework to tell it if your idea is real. And for me, this was really striking that in 1998, these two guys, based on these interviews, came to that conclusion. Because again, I think in 1998, in Europe, this level of what we nowadays call customer centricity was not a kind of widely adapted insight. I think in 1998, still a lot of European entrepreneurs were called what, what we call solution-driven. Yeah, They start from a solution and want to make it technically perfect and then sell it to the market. Whereas what these guys are saying, no, it's not about the solution, it's about the problem. You need to go outside the building, talk with customers, find out what is exactly their pain point, and then you can start building a startup. And in that way, I think it's quite visionary that in 1998, they already bring forward this kind of concept of customer centricity in their propositions, which really struck me, I would say. Well, you know, Dries, you mentioned earlier how it preceded Eric Ries. Right. But mm -hmm. Eric, Eric Reese's lean startup work built off Steve Blank's customer development work. Steve yeah. Blank published uh, The Four Steps to Epiphany in 2005. And mm -hmm. that was based on his learnings from the 90s. Right. So yeah. you put it in context. It's not only that they took these concepts and brought them to Europe, but they articulated them even maybe before the great thought leaders in the US articulated them. So they identified mm. those things really, really early on. The fact that they brought it here, I think was great, but 
at their age, lack of experience. You know, Steve Blank had been a, a, found, a successful founder for two decades at that point, no. right? And for these young guys to, to kind of pick out those pieces, I think was, uh, was quite impressive. Yeah, I agree. So I'll share uh, something that I think they did bring over that was already embedded in the U.S. and I thought was uh, countercultural in that they brought it over, actually. And it was their perceptions of failure and their understanding of failure. So there's actually three propositions. There were actually a few more, but three that I'll highlight that they mentioned. Uh, under, in chapter 14, under recruiting people, hire people who have failed. In chapter 30, about the fear <laughs> of failure. In your entrepreneurial life, it is highly probable that you will have a failure and it will probably be a painful one. But you have to have confidence in your own ability. And if you get knocked down, you have to be willing to get back up and try again. And last, in chapter 30, on ability to learn, transform weaknesses into strengths. Fa failing is, ne is a necessary learning experience. You can learn more from failures than from successes. They hammered that topic home pretty hard in multiple places in this paper. And to me, this might be the most transformative lesson that came from the study and, and really one that is, was not widely accepted in the German entrepreneurial mm. world in the 1990s and is still struggling to take grasp. To put it in perspective, I wanted to really understand this problem. You know, I've talked about it before. I've been quite fascinated about it. But, you know, Germany ranks 28 out of 33 comparably wealthy countries in the rate of startup creation. Why? Mm. Right? One of the things is that it has a reputation for not granting failed entrepreneurs a second chance. That was a big paper in the Mittelstands Monitor like 15 years ago. Germans are more mm. risk averse and afraid of failure than other nationalities. There's studies that that show this, right? And um, I, there's this really great paper if you're interested in the topic of failure in, in German entrepreneurship that was in the Entrepreneurial Behavior and Research uh, called uh, Misperception of Entrepreneurship and Its Consequences for the Perception of Entrepreneurial Failure, the German case. So these, <laughs> <laughs> to show you the significance, even from an academic standpoint of like this, this shit is real, right? So, mm. you know, bringing over this construct that failure is embedded in the entrepreneurial experience to a culture that you know, historically doesn't necessarily see that, I think was, uh, was really, really quite innovative. So, I mean, this really played, in my opinion, a massive role in the, in the formation of, of the, the German startup scene as, mm. as we know it today, in that they recognize failure as part of the journey to success and that, you know, those who have experienced it are going to be profoundly stronger and more likely to, to succeed as, as well. And that it's not just, hey, your business failed, get up and try again, but to bring it back to the kind of lean startup customer development hypothesis tests, you know, those little micro failures that you're embedding into your processes are are key to the success of any venture that to me is massively a massive awareness for two young people that probably shouldn't have been able to grasp that nuance as well as they did no. but do you think that they kept their promises in terms of this proposition because if you go a bit to the history of rocket internet the story that at least i always hear is that oliver zamner 
for the startups that he wanted to create it in Rocket Internet. He came to the campus of WAU during Idea Lab, this big student entrepreneurship conference, and just walked around the whole day to kind of hire these ambitious WAU students to start startup. And based on my own experience, our WAU students are excellent executors. But to be very honest, they often have no understanding of failure. They are actually what McKinsey called these insecure overachievers that from the age of five, they have overachieved in every educational thing that they have been. And then they come to university and they are still these kind of insecure overachievers, which to be very honest, often struggle to deal with failure because it's something that they simply did not have experienced. So if I then see that Zamner has used this kind of people as their, his ultimate pool for selecting founders, that doesn't seem to fit with this proposition or, or am I missing something? I mean, I don't think you are. Um, now I'm not an ex rocket guy or girl. I'm sure there's, <laughs> a, I'm sure there's a few of them listening to this right now that could provide deeper insights, but mm. from the outside looking in my understanding of it was that, you know, the rocket model evolved over time. I know some founders that were early in the game and some that were founders for rocket much later in the game. And I think the model changed, right? Mm. Because my understanding, at least the way that I see it is as they had some successes, they, they essentially brought a lot of that failure process in house when they became mm. more of a venture studio rather than a catalyst, mm. right? So they would do the due diligence, the MVP, the early testing iteration processes in-house. And later on, what they did is instead of getting a, a young person from VHU, they went to, to BCG in Munich yeah. or McKinsey or whatever, and they hired, you know, middle-level consultants that were really good at execution and scale and brought them in. So that at that point, they had already de-risked the business a bit, right? Yeah. So a lot of those micro failures were already in place. Now, what they did beyond that is maybe a, a topic for another discussion. What happened to those founders, how they got kind of pulled out and the overall compensatory structures, I think, may, <laughs> may be a little bit different there. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I think like the one thing I can say is in true lean startup fashion, I get the feeling you know, somewhere in Rocket Internet certainly took the lessons they were learning along yeah. the way and evolving their their methods yeah. too. Yeah, and again, when, when I teach uh, the Lean Startup methodology to my students, I'm always saying, look, this is not a methodology on how to become a successful entrepreneur. This is a methodology that learns you how to fail as quickly as possible because failure is the likely outcome. And that's what we need to accept. And then we need to make sure that we can fail as quickly as possible so that you have not wasted two years of your precious life, but maybe two months. Uh, that's, the method, that's the methodology. And, I, and indeed, again, we see that that's very strongly reflected in these propositions that were written down in 1998. That's right, that's right. Cool. All right, Dries, you got another one? Yes, I have another one. It's a short one, but I really liked it because I think this is still a proposition where I see a lot of uh, new entrepreneurs struggling. And the proposition is be open with your idea. Chances are that it's a stupid idea. And what is the kind of the reasoning behind the proposition in the, the thesis? What uh, Max Finger and Oliver Zammer are emphasizing is you should not be secretive about your idea. 
sometimes, and I still see that nowadays when I talk with students or with young founders, they, they almost want me to sign an NDA if they talk with me to give advice because they think, oh, I have this great idea and nobody should know about it. And I always say, look, most likely 100 entrepreneurs are working on the same idea right now that you don't know because ideas typically are not that rare and it's not that difficult. It will all be about execution. So don't be secretive, be open and try as quickly as possible to build a network around your ideas so that you can be the one that can execute the most successfully. Yeah? So it's not about secrecy, it's about openness and making sure that you're the one that can bring this idea to the next stage. And again, that they were able to identify this insight in 1998 really struck me, I have to say. Indeed, indeed. Um... You know, it reminds me of that book by Brian Dovey, The the Idea is the Easy Part, right? Mm. He's a VC and, and founder in Silicon Valley. We wrote that probably almost 15 years, maybe later after this, right? And I mean, I think that that may sound obvious to a lot of people that, you know, ideas are easy, execution is the hard part. But, you know, there's a lot more in this paper kind of underlying this principle because one of the big parts of the paper talked about the ego, right? Mm. And, you know, that uh, they kind of suggest that the, the founder's ego is the enemy to success, right? Mm. And kind of letting go of the ego and having a collectivist approach to idea generation and refinement is what they saw in all of these other companies. I, I find it fascinating and I agree with it. I also... There is also a little bit irony in there in the sense that they ended up evolving into a company builder, right? Which, in mm -hmm. the, especially with the copycat model where it's idea, you know, and that idea was already kind of predetermined. And yes, there's nuances and things that they improve upon on that idea, but it wasn't this collective, like, let's start with a problem type approach. But it was nevertheless, yeah. I think, open that the ideas are there as a starting point that are meant to be tr transformed and evolved. Yeah. Okay. I'll do another one. Yes. <laughs> um, Next one. And, and I did kind of mention it earlier, but I was fascinated by the commitment to culture. I would say it was the lion's share of this paper was about unpacking startup culture. And I think it makes a lot of sense, right? I think traditional... German management, at least in previous generations, probably didn't have these kind of emphases. So especially if you did, you know, internships or you were exposed to Mittelstand or traditional German corporate culture, and then you go to Silicon Valley, you would go, holy shit, this looks way different. I mean, there's even a principle in there <laughs> about wearing jeans. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which, like it was very important that you must wear jeans which I, I thought was awesome right but but there were a number of uh of cultural topics and i mean i could have picked out 20 but i did mm. still pick out five because i could not find one that was not just like so exciting and impressive to me so i'll be quick and read them this was all yeah. in, in chapter 14 on the key uh characteristics of successful startup culture one proposition Put your ego aside and let the idea float. Once it is born, it is open to be advanced by everybody. There is no ownership of ideas, as we talked about earlier. Next one. If problems come up, do not look who to blame, 
but look how to solve the problem. No, mm-hmm. you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Three, create a culture where it's, it is valued to venture into new areas and where it's okay to make a mistake and admit it. Put the focus on how to resolve a mistake and move on, right? So again, this kind of collectivist kind of mentality, which I thought was great. Proposition four, so timely right now. Can't believe this was 1998. Diversity matters, period. Just think about that for a second, especially coming from Vehau. Diversity matters. Like that was so important, right? That they noticed that not everyone looked the same. Everyone came from different places. Last but not least, make it a work hard, play hard environment. Organize a lot of fun activities in order to make your company a fun place to work so that people feel that this is more than a job, that it is a big part of their life. So, I mean, so much to unpack here, right? But I just wanna, I, I wanna kinda go through them because they're super exciting, right? So, you know, there's no ownership ide- of ideas, right? The, the notion that an idea is just a spark and that it evolved through like collective engagement is so critical to startups in the early stage. I've seen so many times where founder egos and inflexibility kind of lead them to be these defendants of their ideas rather than facilitators of the improvement of those ideas. So, you know, this, this principle to me is just in contrast and stark contrast to traditional management hierarchies. Right, mm-hmm. where the leaders make the decisions and the employees follow orders. And I think this was just a freaking exceptional insight from somewhere. Mm-hmm. There. You know, don't look, don't look to blame problems on people, but look for ways to solve them, right? And I think this is something that's yet to be actualized in, in most parts of the world. Like our, our systems of management are still so, so focused on goals and KPIs rather than learnings. Right, so meet your metrics, meet your marks, or you're you'll be to blame. And these guys mm-hmm. identified, you know, what was important is to know why something broke rather than who broke it, and that would be critical in the long-term success of the organization. And you look twenty plus years, twenty-five years forward now, and we're seeing companies implement frameworks like OKRs, right, mm-hmm. where which put a greater onus on the company's goal setting rather than you know, and, and setting bad metrics rather than the people who may not particularly achieve them. So that is decades a- ahead of time, right? You know, the, the risks and, and, and mistakes part, I think we've, we've kind of talked about at length, but, you know, diversity matters. Diversity matters. I got to read you the quote in this because it just got me so fired up. You know, I'm passionate <laughs> about this topic. Yes. This is what they said. Do not try to hire people like yourself. And respect each other's differences. In the cafeteria of one company, we've, we've seen a map of the world titled, Where Were You Born? With flags pinned into at least a dozen countries all over the world. Now, there's a little irony in this. Yeah, I was, I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Vehau. But history has shown us that, you know, this can't be any more accurate, right? And it's now becoming such an important topic in Germany, all over the world, albeit maybe a little bit too late. And then the last piece I want to say, because I love this one too, like work hard, play hard, right? The whole idea of making the work environment fun, making it casual and social and this place, you know, something that people want to be a part of. They even had a specific tenant in there about making work open to families and supporting not only the employees, 
but also their greatest priorities outside of work, which is their loved ones. The thing that fascinated me about this is this paper was written in 1998. Mm. 1998 was the same year Google started in a garage. So we often think of like what Google did with the workplace and making these fun environments with food and playgrounds and all these different things as a Google invention. These kids identified it before Google even existed. So once again, massive, massive foresight, super cool that they they uh, that, took on those cultural things. But I would say in this case, okay, they identified it, but later on they didn't live up to it, not? <laughs> because I think <laughs> what Zamner was doing was simply hiring baby Zamners that were very similar to him. So here I think, and I fully agree with you, it's, it's, it's fantastic to see that they were able to spot this issue emerging in these US startups but I have not the feeling that they have transformed that insights into their own practices <laughs> because I would not call Rocket Internet an example of diversity. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I've been in the rocket building many times. I wouldn't exactly say it's the Googleplex of, of <laughs> yeah, excitement yeah. in that place either. Also that, so, yeah. so I certainly don't. I agree. I think, you know, um, but it, I, I would love to ask them. I would love yeah. to ask Ali somewhere this specific question because, yeah. you know, I've, as much as I have like poked and prodded at the topic of diversity in entrepreneurship in Germany, I do often get this same response that frankly sometimes makes me want to throw up in my mouth, but it's, oh, we don't have enough to choose from, you know, there's not enough, yeah. there's not enough inventory and in stock of diversity and, you know, <laughs> screw you. I still think that's bullshit, but I think, you know, for young entrepreneurs, you pull from the assets that are available to you. And, you know, it begs the question, how formative, how formidable was Vehau in this journey of success of Rocket if they, in the early days, were pulling talents out of this very homogenous pool of people? Clearly, mm -hmm. clearly it worked. Question to me is, was this a, was it a, uh, a trade-off that they were fully aware of at the time and said, you know, we're not finding it, or do they just disregard it altogether? Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah, it would be very interesting because they clearly identified it. They mm -hmm. identified the importance in the, in the thesis. They nicely described why it's important. And then you see that they have bluntly put it aside when they started building their startup. Mm -hmm. And so that's, and is it not willing to embrace it or not able to embrace it? That indeed would be a very interesting thing to discuss. Yeah. Yes, Oli somewhere. if you're listening, join <laughs> us and answer, answer for these questions. <laughs> All right, Dries, yeah. I think you've got, you got one more that uh, yeah. impressed you. Be because this is actually also, again, one that even today, I, I often see that, that people make this mistake, actually, especially in more corporate settings. So if I'm going into corporate incubators, corporate accelerators, and you see what kind of businesses they are developing, they are often kind of promoting or building startups that are kind of tackling a regulatory issue. And for instance, today you have this, uh, what is called in German, this Liefergesetz, so that you have to make your uh, supply chain very transparent. You have, of course, all the legislation around scope two, scope three emissions. And so I see in a lot of corporates that they are building ventures to address this kind of issues. And then I, when I ask them why, it's always yeah, like, yeah, the regulation is coming, so there's a huge opportunity. Uh, and 
but actually finger and Zamner say in the master thesis, this is exactly what you shouldn't do. And more specifically, they have the proposition, never um, solely rely on a regulatory environment for an advantage because it can change. Build the foundation for long-term business success on fundamental economics. And I think they have a very good point here. And so regulation might give you a very short-term window for an opportunity, but again, you can also expect that a lot of people will simultaneously jump on this opportunity. You're not the only one that knows that there is a new Lieferketten-Gesetz coming in Germany. Um, and in that way, I think we overestimate often the opportunities that regulatory changes can offer. And in that way, I think it's a nice and provocative proposition that still today is very relevant, I would say. Yeah, great. It's a fascinating, you know, there's two parts of that principle that I thought were really interesting. Obviously, one was like, don't rely on regulatory changes and, you know, shifts in the way the political winds are blowing makes a lot of sense because there's so few, there's so little of it in the U.S. that they would come back and go, don't do that. Uh, yeah. Conversely, they would come home and, and, and see the otherwise. Um, but what I really like about it is really in the second part that they say build the foundation for long-term business success on fundamental economics. And I feel like this was, this was kind of their way of bringing in some of their own homegrown German fiscal discipline <laughs> into the equation, right? Like focus on strong unit economics, use yeah. tangible metrics, know your numbers, like all great lessons for founders, you know? It does kind of make me wonder a little bit, like this was you know, 20 years before the era of blitzscaling, right? Mm. Even, even in the US, right? Where the focus is gro on growth first and foremost, like we'll, we'll figure out the unit economics later once we've captured the market kind of thing, right? And, and I think there's some irony here, right? Because in a way, like the rocket ventures, especially in the later days, tended to be really well capitalized for fast growth early mm. on in the game. Right. So they were trying to capture markets quickly. So they were putting a lot of horsepower behind it to grow and own that market before yet another incumbent or another challenger came in, which maybe suggests uh, not the same level of discipline suggested by this this proposition. So what I think is um, was a, a really interesting insight and made me go, oh, yeah, those are. Those are German entrepreneurship students in America looking and going, huh, you know, good, we need good economics, good economics. But when you look at the history of it, maybe that started to change as they had the, the competitive advantage of all the capital behind them. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Okay, man. Cool. I, uh, a lot of great insights, you know, I think a lot of pieces there that I do think were visionary. And when you, you know, mm -hmm. again, if, if someone, if a student were to come to you today, you'd go, all right, guy, you know, you're regurgitating like the dominant literature of the era. But when you put no. it in the context of 1998, you know, it, it really, it really was quite visionary. Some of the things that, that they identified. Yeah. And but, it really made me think again, also like, okay, if these guys, if I would have been the professor supervising the thesis in 1998, and these guys would come back from the US with this manuscript, with these quite kind of very different propositions of how we 
learned at that point entrepreneurship, how would I have reacted? I don't know. Would I have I, said to them, I know. guys? <laughs> yeah. I know. I've heard about you, Dries. They would not have gotten good grades. <laughs> Now, I, so I, I'm, I'm really, I, I really don't know. Now, to be honest, I would definitely have told them, guys, you need to read the academic literature. You cannot start making these statements without having a solid academic background. So def that I definitely would have pushed them to do, but that's something I think they would be perfectly capable of doing. But still, having yeah, this kind of insights, I really wonder what would have been my reaction at that point in time. And, and indeed, I'm not sure if it would be <laughs> positive or negative. <laughs> I mean, I would be curious to see the work behind the work, right? Did they yeah. tra transcribe interviews and code, you know, code the interviews like proper qualitative researchers would do? Or is, did they just summarize these, these thoughts? Now, I think yeah, at least when you read the master thesis, they, they clearly explicitly use quotes from the interview. So I think they definitely transcribed all of them, whether they would have applied a very systematic coding. To be very honest, in 1998, even that was not yet very established. Mm -hmm. So how we process qualitative data is also something that really emerged in the past 20 years. Um, so in that way, again, uh, it was quite a bold endeavor to kind of do 19 interviews and then develop propositions out of that, which was definitely not that common at that stage. And, and to be fair, that is a shitload of interviews for a master's mm. thesis. That is a ton, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, I, I think most professors would not demand that level of, you know, first like primary data collection for a master's thesis, right? No, and also if you look at the people that they interviewed, these were not the assistants of the assistants. Huh? These were the vice presidents, the CEOs, the bankers. So again, yeah, quite impressive. All right, Dries. Well, we talked about visionary propositions. We, we got to talk a little bit about some of the irony that we found in there. I think, to be fair, we are looking at this in hindsight 25 years later. So let's give everyone, you know, cred credit where it's due. But why don't you share with me some of the ironic propositions that you saw? Yes, and I will start with the one that I think might easily win the award for the most ironic proposition in this master thesis. Namely, uh, the proposition that says, and so I literally quote now from the master thesis, do not steal ideas and pay attention to the terms of your employment contract. <laughs> and definitely the first part is quite ironic if we know uh, the, the history of Rocket Internet, where I think it's common knowledge and wide established that what they did was at least copying ideas. Um, whether you have to define that as stealing is, of course, another topic. Um, and you can have a legal discussion about that. But it is very clear that they have copied ideas from the US and introduced them in Europe. Um, and I think there are sufficient anecdotes to say that copying went quite far. Uh, if you then on the website find in the Impressum copy-paste from other companies, <laughs> then there is clearly extreme copying slash stealing going on. Um, and so in that way, I think this proposition is quite ironic. Mm. And maybe Garrett, you know that better than me. I think this is exactly the fact that is heavily a kind of affected the reputation of Rocket Internet in the US. 
Um, yeah, sure, sure. I think, I mean, yes, nobody, nobody is enamored with the copycat, right? Um, mm. But, I mean, was it Picasso that said, you know, that great artists steal? I forgot exactly what the quote was. Yeah, you know, something like that, yeah. Yeah, something along those lines. But, I mean, I, I personally, when I saw this proposition, I, I would, instead of saying, do not steal ideas and pay attention to the terms of your employment contract, I think it's more do not copy ideas and pay attention to the terms of your shareholder agreement. And <laughs> okay. the reason I look, I, I think copying is not stealing, right? Like mm. it's, if a business business concept is in the public domain in a, a free market capitalist society, everyone has a shot at taking it, you know? But mm. I think what he was talking about really more than anything in this context was that, you know, you, you're deciding you want to be a founder, right? You know, he talked about how the best way to become a founder is you start working at a big company and then you slowly mm. go to smaller and smaller and smaller companies, getting more experience in these different contexts until you're ready to be a founder yourself. But don't steal the intellectual property of those companies and pay attention no. to your employment contract, because what that says in there is, you know, there is a, a, a inventions clause in there that says anything that's created belongs belongs with that company. But I think we're just like, because Rocket has this, you know, very, very clear brand as, as a copycat business, it, there's so much irony in, in yeah. saying that. And I imagine <laughs> that if, if, if Finger and Samor had a chance to go back and revise this today, they might change the language on that one. Just so there's no, no uncertainty. <laughs> But, but but Garrett, how are you actually looking at this topic? So this whole kind of rocket internet copying ideas, which at least if I if I read kind of more US kind of um, narratives about rocket internet is seen in a very negative way. How about this your position there? I mean, I, I think the I think so. I, I don't see it in such a negative way, right? Because mm. I think it's been going on, right? Nobody claim, blames Facebook for being a mm. copycat of MySpace yeah. or whatever came before that, right? Or, you know, yeah. I mean, there's so many, the search engines, like all the big, great companies in the world seem to kind of copy off someone. Nobody really blames them because they took something, it wasn't working, they found a way to make it better and capture market share. Full stop. Mm. I, I think maybe what rubs people wrong on the rocket approach is just how blatant it was because it, <laughs> because there and, and it's not that it was just like hey we're going to copy this idea it was we're going to copy this idea get traction in this market as quickly and then force you to buy it mm. right so the exit strategy was built into the conception strategy so i think it it came off as very utilitarian very much of a, a money grab and it was less about creating value and innovation but it was about beating the challenger to the new market so they could make a premium on selling it back right which is essentially more of a it's less of a innovation game and more of like a financial product more than any yeah. other still execution behind it. So it kind of takes a lot of the, the romance and luster away from the entrepreneurial experience. Exactly. Yeah. And I think exactly. that yeah. that's probably more appropriately for people that think about it, it is what turns them off to that model. All right, Therese, I'm gonna get on to my next proposition. Um, I did touch on it a little bit already, but I just, in the context of 
you know, only some were being a VHU student, this being a, a VHU thesis. Um, I thought it was, it, it was pretty interesting. And it, so their proposition is this, try to get an educational background and experience that support the venture. Go to gradually smaller companies, always go to the best companies, try to be on the cutting edge all the time, whatever you do. So there's a lot of irony behind this, uh, it, in my opinion. Um, there's just kind of like this mixed bag of analyses and thinking that precedes it, you know. And interestingly, it's like one of the shortest chapters in, in the thesis, which is the background of the entrepreneur. And, and once again, I feel like I got to read you this quote because I love how it starts. This is the quote from this section. The media perception of what a great entrepreneur is, is a 23-year-old brilliant guy coming out of school and deciding to start a business. The misconception is that what gets written about people like Bill Gates and Michael Dell, who started these companies at 18 and who simply came out of high school, is for the majority of the people a very unrealistic expectation. The typical entrepreneurs are people that have experience in the industry, who are rather in their mid-30s or 40s, who are often serial entrepreneurs, who have an industry track record and relationships with people in the industry. Let that sink in for a second. <laughs> that is two students in 1998. Yeah. You know, this is like, this research and that statement like proved to be so true and is just like such a great example of what a successful founder uh, founder profile looks like. I got to continue with this because this is so worth reading and I know not everyone's going to read this. To continue on with this founder profile, they have often worked for the most renowned companies such as GE, Intel, Motorola, IBM, Microsoft, Lotus, Netscape, HP, and Apple or McKinsey and BCG <laughs> before they decided to be an entrepreneur and launch a venture. Hmm. Uh, hindsight here. Most entrepreneurs get ideas while working in these large companies. The recognition of customer needs and technological solutions to these problems derive often from something you are working on while you are with a large company. The challenge is that you have to be already high enough up in the hierarchy to understand the big picture, but still low enough down to be close to the customer, which I thought was really interesting, right? So he's basically pinpointing these are, you know, senior managers, early directors, they they can they get to participate in the strategy level, mm. but are still um, still touched with the customer. But you know, I would say there the one piece about this is a little bit of it is kind of antithetical to some of the other arguments you know kind of talked about in the thesis, particularly their big focus on culture, mm. right? Where they're talking about the importance of information flows and risk fail culture and urgency and having open doors of communication all things that are not typical in the large kinds of companies they, they mention, right? Mm. And if you think about it, right, you know, these big, large companies, IBM, I mean, come on, like, you know, the company culture is defined by established rules rather than the communication of a small group of people, right? While startups are more organic and defined by the founders and the early hires, like big companies focus on training personnel, mm. right? Startups focus on the learnings of personnel, right? Like big companies focus on compensation packages that look totally different than, than a startup with 
incentives and value propositions for upward mobility that these smaller companies don't have. And, and probably most importantly, like large companies so often stifle creativity and exploration, right? They have these growth objectives that, and very specifically designed roles while small companies are all about exploration, right? And wearing multiple hats. So I found it really, really interesting that they would suggest that working for IBM or McKinsey or BCG would prepare you for the startup experience, right? Because I, I would say like, Although these companies, the experience is great and albeit valuable for later stage startups, growth stage scale-ups, they tend to be in big, big conflict mm. with the zero to one process, the zero to one stage. And the piece that I find so fascinating about this is if you look at the trajectory of Rocket Internet in the later days, that is what they did, mm. right? They pulled from the BCGs and the McKinsey's of world and pulled their founders in to do this. I think the big question is, is where did they have their most success? Mm. Did Rocket have its success, you know, pulling in the, the startup hungry founders in the early days where they were really just trying to figure stuff out and learn really quickly? Or did they have greater success when they, you know, internally incubated ventures and then pulled the consulting guys to, to come in? Yeah, and, and also here, I think the irony is that these guys wrote it down in the master thesis. Again, I think a very in-depth insights. It's, it's linked to the importance of social capital. You need to build up experience to have the social capital to successfully build a startup. And these are things, again, that I, I nowadays learn my students, which are a bit counterintuitive if you hear the narrative of the 20-year-old guy in a hoodie creating a successful startup. So I think they nicely captured the fundamental insights that we today agree upon. But at the same time, two months after they read this thing, they started their own startup, being apparently fully confident that they could create a successful startup without having this experience. So that actually shows how confident these guys had to be that they knew that actually it's the people with experience that are more likely to create a successful startup. And nevertheless, they decided, screw it. We start our Orlando startup and we will make it, which they did in the end. So they, they were able to accomplish it. But it's, for me, it was quite fascinating to see the level of confidence that they had to go against the kind of the odds that uh, they identified themselves in their research. I mean, what's interesting is that that identification really came to the foray in the past five years or so. Right? Yeah. It's more and more studies that have come out that have showed that successful founders have all this domain and industry expertise or in their, their 40s and whatnot. They identified it way, way, way early, but I would say they didn't apply it necessarily <laughs> as, as they learned it. So once again, ahead of their time, yeah. fair enough, right? Yeah. So yeah. cool. All right. You got one? I have one more. Um, and the proposition is about competition. So this is one where they say in the proposition, choose an opportunity that does not have a lot of competition. You have to look at your chances of succeeding, not based just on the thing that you're doing, but also based on the competitive environment. So what they are saying is again, try to find an opportunity that is not too crowded, where there are not too many competitors, because the more competitors are out there, the less likely you will be the one that wins the game. And it's quite intriguing 
that in the master thesis, they give one particular industry as an example for an industry that you should not enter because it's already crowded with competitors and that industry is e-commerce. <laughs> and again, if we then look at the, the future of Oliver Zamner, it's quite ironic that in his master thesis, he tells other people not to go into e-commerce because it's too crowded. And of course, as we know later on, the most successful startups in which he has been involved were exactly e-commerce startups. So in that way, again, kind of combining the, the insight, which I think again, makes a lot of sense with what Oliver Zamner has done later on, made this proposition quite ironic, I have to say. It's interesting. I mean, I, I do think it's funny that that was the, the, uh, the domain that he, they particularly identified, but what I would say that they did hold true to that tenant in one way, right, is they entered, they, their companies entered markets with no competition, mm. right? If you look at the global, if they were competing on a global scale, they would be competing against much larger, much, you know, more well-funded challengers or uh, uh, incumbents with uh, um, a big head start. But you, just using the eBay example, eBay was well established in the U.S. And when when you know Oli Samor joined Jurg and those boys to launch Alando, that did not exist in Germany. Mm. So in essence, they yeah. had a greenfield opportunity in in their own specific market. So, but I also would say like one of the things that they tried to do, even with all of their copycats, is they oftentimes had some level of, you know, USP or perhaps even just really great execution ability to differentiate themselves from even the big players. And I mean, I think one of the best examples of it, well, two actually, Zalando, which I would say has outperformed Zappos mm. over the years. And, and then I would say HelloFresh, which just, I think, dominated Blue Apron to the point that they acquired them. Right. No. And became the global leader. So even though they came later and they were a bit of a copycat, they did have some differentiators and just far superior execution ability. So no. um, in a lot of cases, like delivery, you know, trumps the competitive environment. But it, so they did kind of go against this tenant. Yeah. in in quite a few ways but yeah and, and we also need to acknowledge again huh, we are talking here about 1998 in 1998 e-commerce was something very new there was a lot of discussion whether this would happen i can imagine again i was in my bachelor and we had we got an information systems course where this notion of e-commerce was something completely no, where our professor was saying, yeah, I am not sure if you ever will be willing to pay via the internet, this crazy internet that we have now, whether people would be willing to pay via the internet, that seems very uncertain. So that that's the stage where we are here when they talk about e-commerce. That's like mm -hmm. saying today, you should not go into generative AI because we have no idea where it's going and it's too crowded that it's there's too much hype, whatever. Um, so in that way, again, we have to take the context here into account. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the idea in 1998 that e-commerce was already overly saturated. <laughs> it's kind of how I felt when I had a chance to buy Bitcoin at under a thousand bucks. I was like, oh, this is inflated. It's never going any higher. <laughs> so, but yeah, um, hindsight is always 2020, right? Yes. <laughs> but, you know, there was one piece in your proposition where he said, choose an opportunity. 
that does not have a lot of competition, mm. which is my last ironic insight. And it, it's not just one proposition. It's the uh, an abundance of the propositions, right? Where the core tenant of their approach to new venture creation was really focused on opportunities. You know, like that's what they focused on. The entirety of chapter two is dedicated to opportunities. Mm. And, you know, it discusses the types of opportunities based on paradigm shifts and new product and business models, the, the Me Too kind of approach, right? It discusses how to recognize opportunities, the changing markets, poorly understood markets, big, fast growing markets, you know, slow moving incumbents and low competition, right? It, I mean, it even outlines like the ways to recognize opportunities, whether you take an intuitive versus an analytical approach, right? Mm. So opportunity was core. And like, although they mention problem, I actually did a word count because I was so curious <laughs> about this topic. The word problem came up 22 times in the paper. Uh. <laughs> and uh, the word opportunity came up 99 times. <laughs> so if, if that gives you a little bit of sense of kind of their approach, right? Mm. Now, it, this may not be the, the textbook solution looking for a problem mindset, but it's fucking sure close to it, mm -hmm. right? Like, and my God, has that mentality like trickled into the startup culture of Vehau and in many ways, the broader ecosystem in Berlin. It's like idea, 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 which is ironic because they say, hey, don't get so attached to your ideas, mm -hmm. right? But really their whole approach is about ideas. Now, let's put this into context a little bit. Right. So, you know, Summers and Rockets kind of business successes were really, truly were rooted in this methodology, mm. right? With, you know, so many of his ventures being, you know, based on like paradigm shifts or kind of me too opportunities. And I mean, without a doubt, like some of these ventures were incredibly successful. Zalando as compared to Zappos, you know, I mean, there's the Lazada Amazon thing. There's HelloFresh Blue Apron, Home24, Wayfair. Like these copycat things work pretty well where the idea was, was centric. But like what happens when that well of ideas starts to run dry, where the incumbents maybe aren't as slow moving they don't know how to internationalize as, as you know they maybe the new ones know how to internationalize better than the old ones right so what happens and they i think history showed that mm. where some of rocket's later businesses just died catastrophically right think of like easy taxi they were going to do the same thing to uber and uber just ate them for lunch same with Wimdu yeah. and airbnb right airbnb was like uh-uh we don't need to acquire you right we've got all the mechanisms in place to outcompete you where wherever you are mm. right so the the idea centrism the opportunity centrism approach that they started with that worked for a while over time they just ran out of opportunities to do that really effectively let's bring that into today right now we're in a totally different era, right? We are in an era where, you know, much more deep tech, you know, more companies are built on R&D and the deep scientific and technical knowledge of their founders. Like this opportunity-based approach, it just doesn't really work 
anymore, right? Mm. So this is what I think the paper missed fundamentally more than anything from these guys' Silicon Valley experience and how founders discovered their opportunities. And this comes back to something that I talk about a lot, which is founder market fit, right? And, you know, in so many successful cases of great companies, the founders stumbled upon the problem. Mm. They felt the pain of the problem and not the idea, right? I mean, you know, Brian Chesky and his co-founder of Airbnb, like they couldn't find a hotel room during a conference and they had air mattresses. So like they pumped them up and they immediately sold out. Like, you know, Travis Kalanick and the, and his co-founders at Uber were in Paris for this tech conference and they couldn't hail a cab, right? Mm. So they came up with what eventually became Uber. Uber, same with the Instacart founders, right? Like worked at Amazon, hated going to go grocery shopping. Like, so they all, all these great ones, like they started with like a really feeling the pain of a problem and went to seek out a solution. So long story short, like, you know, if you try to copy someone else's concept in a new market like Rocket did, you may be successful because your timing and your execution were exceptional, right? But if the incumbent that's out there really understands the problem and the customer and really knows that well and maintains its speed and agility in its growth stage like it did in its early stage, then they're going to kick your ass, mm. right? So the whole model that they built upon where opportunity was centric and the copycat model was centric. I think what people don't realize is, you know, this wasn't a big seat market sea change that killed that approach. It's that they happened to identify just the right businesses that were slow moving. They, they were, didn't have the foresight to see growth in other markets. You know, the your Grindbolt story, I think it's episode two of our podcast where mm. he talks about the Alando story. If you haven't listened to it, audience, check it out. It's a great story, right? But how Pierre Omidyar called them and said, I'm coming to Berlin, right? And basically we said, let's partner. And they said, we're not partnering and he ends up buying it, right? And like, that was just a case where like they, eBay got caught with the blinders on, mm. right? They, maybe egos, maybe focus. They did not see it coming, right? And a couple of these other ventures, Zappos, maybe the same thing. Makes you ask about the founders and what they were doing. But like Rocket had a success because it found the businesses that they could copycat, mm. where the opportunity was centric. But once they ran out of a supply, I think the model philosophically broke. So opportunity fine on rare occasion, but great businesses are built with the problem first. Yeah, because that, that was indeed a question that I also had when I reading it, like imagine that we have now again, two very smart, ambitious BAU students that come to my office and they say, look, we want to do a thesis on America's most successful startups in 2024, let's say. And they fly to the US, they go to Silicon Valley and other places to interview a lot of people and they come back and they write a new thesis. How would you think this thesis would be different? What would be a kind of essential difference between what we have read now in 1998 and how this thesis would look like 25 years later? What do you think would be essential kind of differences? Oh God, I'm going to get in trouble here. <laughs> I was going to say the first thing is, is, you know, hi, we're, 
thank you for this research. We're transferring to TUM or Ayurveda Aachen or a, a technical university. Like, I mean, I think honestly, I'm, I'm half joking in that response is they would see the significance of, of technology mm. and the, the much greater emphasis on engineering and science in the, the 2023-24 ventures mm. and realize that they couldn't do it alone. No. And, you know, they needed other resources and they may be able to come in with the great commercialization talents, but they wouldn't be able to pick and cherry pick from their own and form a team and be able to do what they do now. Mm. The diversity piece matters more than ever, not just ethnic, cultural, national, but also skills and, and experiences and backgrounds. I think that's first and foremost. Second, I'm not sure they would even be able to do that research because they're not knocking on those Sandhill Road doors anymore and those CEO doors <laughs> as a bunch of bachelor students. Like what what those two fellas did in 1998, mm. I mean, even then it wasn't that easy. It's that took a, a incredible, exceptional mindset and hustle to be able to do that. I think it would be it would be quite difficult. But I mean, in terms of the the lessons learned, they would have a hard time writing this paper because it would be a literature review. Mm. You know, like as you said, most of this stuff has now been yeah. you know well researched and and well proven. So if they wanted to come up with a playbook like this it would look like chat GPT plagiarism. <laughs> there, Greece, and, you know? So the, the only thing that holds this stuff up is the copyright date of 1998 at the bottom. Yeah. So I think in the end, it, it, it would be difficult. But the big key lesson is you're not going to have a couple business student guys, you know, building a whole new ecosystem anymore. Mm. It, it's going to take, it's going to be much more about relationship building with people that don't speak the same language as you, that speak the language of mathematics and science and, and engineering. And you're not going to find that in Follander. So if there's a lesson to, you know, the, the aspiring entrepreneurs coming out of Vejo now, it's like, go talk to Max at the, you know, entrepreneurship center and start building bridges with the, the other skills because you know, I think I've said it before on here, two roles in a startup, you sell shit or you build shit, mm -hmm. you know, and if you can't build, you better go find people that can because they are the stars of the show in the 21st century. No, and I think you're fully right. And I think we also recognize that at Weahu, that's why we are investing a lot of effort in kind of trying to build, to bring kind of tech teams from indeed from Aachen, Bochum, Dortmund, wherever they are, and, and kind of, kind of imputes our people into these teams because often and then the, you have this kind of tech teams with very smart phd students but that might not have the commercial kind of mindset to to bring it to the next step and then our students can really help this kind of teams to take the commercial uh, role to do the sales and to bring them to the next step so i i think uh, that that's a crucial kind of objective that we need to have so it's not making WAU team successful. It's kind of blending our WAU talent into tech teams so that they can kind of jointly be successful. Yeah, I mean, shout out to our our team from our first WAU accelerator. Like I think Lydra Tech is yes. such a great example, right? Yeah. Where Alex Eagleman joined up with the uh, the physicists from, from Bochum and, and built this venture where you know, one side, the Vehu brought the commercialization, the storytelling, all of that, the, the, the nuts and bolts of 
building a business versus you know all of the engineering, science, and technical talent. To me, that's the future of what Vehau can bring to the table mm. with the appropriate humility that comes along with it. I think the big interesting thing is to think about is, you know, Vehau is such an interesting case because it's almost built its own ecosystem, right? In a lot of ways, it's been its own catalyst for success because of the successes of the Oli Samors of the world, you know, reinvesting in the next generation of yeah. the Zalandos and HelloFreshes and so on. And, and, you know, as that kind of trickles down. Now that we have a, a serious perturbation in the system where it's not marketplace, e-commerce, you know, more low-fi, low-tech businesses, the question is, is does that break the whole model, right? Because if I'm a, a deep tech company, the investors that made their money off a of marketplace may be not as compelling to mm. take capital from as, you know, ones that specialize in that. And I think we're seeing that, like, to me, and I've talked about this on, you know, in other keynotes and stuff about the existential threat to like the Berlin ecosystem, mm. for example, is fortunately, I think there's great VCs that are really adapting to the change and to the climate, you know, shout out to a lot of the Vejo alums that are leading those companies, but you, you have to really start, the investors have to start tweaking their value proposition to a new generation of founders that are looking for a different type of value beyond just the networks and the capital that come with that type of that type of investment. So the whole it's not just the founders coming out of Vehau and coming out of business schools that are going to have to adapt, but it's the whole system of feeders and that ecosystem around them that are going to have to shift to this new paradigm. Yeah. No, no, I agree. And and that's why I think it was interesting to discuss this master thesis because it was a kind of representation of the initial testament of a group of VAU students that have identified this new approach and have been able to kind of apply it in a very specific setting. Uh, but I think we also realize that today conditions have changed so that this can no longer be the Bible for our students and we need to adjust to the circumstances that we have nowadays. And that will be an important challenge. I, I mean, I just want to say like, to me as a student of history, someone that like loves understanding where things come from. I mean, in a much smaller degree, this is almost like the story of like Fairchild, you know, in Silicon Valley yeah. becoming Intel. And like it, it, it represents the birth of an ecosystem mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. And I don't want to take away from SAP and many other of the great companies that have, were technology companies that were in, in Germany beforehand. But when you think of like, taking the concept of startups and mainstreaming them to into German culture and to a large extent continental European culture, like this, this paper is almost like it's one of the catalysts of the mm. beginning of this. So the significance of it, that it came from these kids that really had no clue what they were doing at that time and that they were smart enough to gain those insights and then found ways to execute on it to create billions and billions of value, whether you like their models or not, whether you like the personas or you like their ethics or their leadership styles or whatever that might be, the brilliance of those days in 1998 to through the era of rocket internet is just an extraordinary journey that I think needs to be applauded. Uh, really, really incredible young men that did this work.
Yes, and let's hope that at least we were able to kind of <laughs> give some transparency to the existence of this document because I think I don't think a lot of people have read it, but I think it's it's a very fascinating document to read. And as you said, especially from a historical perspective, uh, it's really intriguing to see what these guys have written down in the thesis. And to be fair, it's an easy read, right? Yeah. Like this is something that. You know, this is bathroom reading. You can breeze <laughs> through it section by section. Um, so I highly recommend it. Those are that are interested in understanding like the generations before them, it's it's really a worthwhile read. And honestly, Dries, I feel like we didn't scratch the surface. Mm. I would love to have another conversation. I think we could go for days on this, but there were so many other things that we didn't even get to to touch on in our short time. Yeah, I think there are like 90 <laughs> propositions left in the, in the document. So <laughs> in that way, plenty of stuff to discuss in the future. Yeah, indeed. Awesome. Okay, Garrett, I think let's uh, finish here. So I think this was very nice and, and I was really looking forward to this because this was already for a long time on my bucket list to discuss with you this master thesis. So it was great that we had the opportunity to do so. And for our audience, thanks again for listening. We hope that you also enjoyed it, that you learned something from it. And please uh, just listen also next time when we come with our new episodes in the new year. Okay. Happy holidays. See yes. you in 2024. Bye.